0: February 1992 the legendary player and former England captain Kevin Keegan joined Newcastle United as manager the club at the time were in deep financial trouble and they were looking at relegation and they'd lost twice as many games as they'd won that season yet somehow Keegan kept them up and allied to the money that was provided by the new owner Sir John Hall Newcastle then went on a streak that would do a huge amount to shape the early years of the Premier League In 92-93, they won the second tier at a canter, winning the first 11 games in a row and finishing things off with a home demolition of playoff contenders Leicester, where they won, I think, 7-1. The following season, Andy Cole scored more than 30 goals in that year as the promoted side finished third. In 94-95, they'd sell him to Manchester United as part of a British record fee and the reinvestment of that money led to one of the great unsuccessful Premier League challenges ever. The neutral's favourite Everyone's second team by as early as the September of 1993, they were called the entertainers. But there's a few misnomers about this team. Uh, if we actually look at 95, 96, the defence that takes the blame for so much of what happened in the back half of that season, the defence wasn't actually that bad. They only conceded two more goals than Manchester United did that season. And they scored seven less goals than Man United did that year. So when we start to look past the the misconceptions, just to get us going, why do we call them the entertainers? You know, what, why have they got this reputation? And I suppose I might as well throw this over to you because I'm guessing it has a big part of why you ended up uh, uh, aligning yourself with them, Joe, because I'm guessing there's no geographical connection that would, would pull you that way. So, I mean, what is it that made them everybody's second team if they didn't play with that kind of abandon that meant that they had 11 men forward in the way that we sometimes think that they did? I mean, for, for me, there, there was an identity
1: about them. I think they they played on the front foot. Um, it didn't really matter who they played against, really, either. they, they always seemed to try to be positive. Uh, this team in particular, when you look at the squad, there, there's two sort of main creative forces. Peter Beardsley, who you know we we've, we've covered before on this uh, this podcast was you know one one of the sort of the the best sort of creative players in in uh, in, in the country uh, for a, for a number of teams um, and he was still a real force um, in this side created all sorts of opportunities for first Andy Cole and then uh, this season we're going to talk about uh, for Les Ferdinand um, and also this. Over this summer, we signed Dava Ginola. What a player he was, would drag players in and out, left and right, could play, could cross with the left foot, shoot with the right foot. You know, it, it was an exciting player to watch. I think it's interesting that compared to, you know, when you compare it to United, that you know, obviously United scored more goals, didn't they? So it, it, it is, as you say, it is a bit of a misnomer. We, I think possibly the sort of the... the the quantity of goals that we would score in certain games, you know, pe- people sort of, sort of, well, you know, we we'll obviously score a lot of goals, but there were plenty of games where we sort of huffed and puffed in. So um, it's it's, a, it's an interesting one, isn't it? But I think it's more to do with sort of the identity and also, the, I mean, the way that, that Keegan set up, um, it was always going to be positive, it always seemed to be, you know, we'll, we'll, we're we going to try and score one more goal than you. Uh, but that was, that was the,
0: the reputation that he had. So, so you mentioned Peter Beardsley there. I mean, he's one of the first signers, I suppose, we should uh, come to because he joins prior to the 95-96 season when they do bring in Gina. Um So just to get him in before we come back to, uh, to Neil, um, Beardsley's already 33, 34 when he signs. He's had this long career where he's been to to Liverpool and Everton through his peak. And they sign him to pair him with Andy Cole, who's the striker that everyone wanted to sign in the second tier. And Newcastle get him when they're still not a Premier League side. So the momentum's already building when they come up in that 93-94 side. And the pairing of and Cole and Beardsley takes the, the league by storm uh, in that first thing. So, uh, yeah, I just wanted to get that in first to to show that the uh, the side's already coming together. I mean, I think it's worth saying that actually that, that sort of initial
2: side that that comes first is a is a really really good football team as well and you've obviously got the uh the well-known scene of Keegan on the steps of St James's Park um justifying his decision to sell Andy Cole to uh, to United saying that you know he, he wants to play a different way and of course the vision was he wanted Les Ferdinand who was a bit more all action you know Cole amazing goal poacher but Ferdinand's offered something, uh, something quite different. And Keegan obviously had this vision of, I mean, Keegan had played with John Toshak. And um, and, and I think he had in mind Beardsley as Keegan and, um, and Ferdinand as Toshak in some ways. Um, and then, of course, you had Gillespie and Ginona you know, whipping in these crosses from either side, Rob Lee and Lee Clark breaking into the box from midfield. And I think what I'd say about this Newcastle team Absolutely, it's a myth that that they were, you know, they played with 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 abandon. I I wouldn't have said that at all. But what they were, I think, is the last great incarnation of the English 442. Uh, and like we covered like United 93, 94, and then you kind of have this Newcastle ninety-five, ninety-six, and it is the the most English team you can imagine. You know, they've got the continental flair in there, but it is two genuine wide players, two genuine box-to-box midfield players, a little and large striking partnership, full backs that get forwards and put crosses in as well. And so I think the reason why they've maintained that reputation on one hand is that they represented a very particular type of English football that existed for 15 or 20 years beforehand and was, you know, ultimately going to be superseded by more patient forms of play. Um, and then, of course, the other reason why the myth has persisted is because of the 4-3. But, you know, we'll get into that uh, later <laughs> yeah, we'll on, will. no doubt.
0: Doubtless, <laughs> doubtless. Uh Yeah, sorry, it's a crucial part of the story. We're going to have to talk about it. Uh, Just to stick with Beardsley for a moment, because I think it's a really important part, because he's a really classy player, and he probably gives the lie to the idea that the number 10 position is imported from the continent in the 1990s. You know, he's capable of playing some of that link-up work between midfield and striker, and playing off the striker in that way, that, well, even before he gets to Newcastle, uh, in, infamously he's Gary Lineker's favourite strike
2: partner yeah. ever um I mean I, I guess the thing about the the number 10 position is that it, it existed English football but it existed as part of a two with one player being a bit more creative I mean Keegan played that way for Liverpool in the 70s Dalglish played that way for Liverpool in the later 70s it existed but it was a second striker as opposed to somebody that was between the lines do you know what I mean like so it was number 10 but not in
0: quite the same way as in Italy yeah, yeah. in the way that uh, to use a football manager analogy you can set them up with different instructions they are he would often play between the lines but it's a slightly different thing he would also play well Keegan for example you could play uh, think about it, in modern terms deep enough that you would look at him and think of him as a midfielder but he could also play as the point of an attack as well and there was a much more kind of fluidity whereas we think of the Italian 10 quintessentially is much more of a permanent fixture between the lines and, and in that yeah. whole um... exactly exactly that exactly yeah. that you know and actually to be fair you know like
2: somebody like Bergkamp somebody like Cantonar they were actually similar to Beardsley you know mm. like in that sense it's more the zonas of the world you know that that were permanently stationed in that kind of proxy zone you know that you you Mm. talk about so so yeah it's it's just different types of number 10 i think Mm. um but beardsley was a a wonderful player like i he one of my big first football memories is 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 watching um liverpool 88 89 and liverpool 89 90 like Mm. a brilliant football team and beardsley and barnes were the best two players in the country by an enormous distance in 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 that time, and um, yeah, watching their interplay, Barnes from 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 the left hand sides and and Beardsley kind of like from that second striker role was just just unbelievable. You know, he was a, a fantastic footballer.
1: I mean, you've also it's also worth bearing in mind. you already mentioned that Lineker said he was he was the best strike partner he ever had. I don't think there's any coincidence at all that both. Andy Cole and Les Ferdinand had their best seasons in English football playing next to him.
0: Not quite. quite he, absolutely.
1: He's. He, I. I think he's surprisingly underrated um, at, at this at this point in his career uh, for what he did for those two players. Because I mean, Cole was, you know, for for all all the the trophies that he won at Manchester United, I don't think you'd ever seen with the same sort of level of sort of invincibility that he uh, that he had at Newcastle Ferdinand obviously played the following season alongside Alan Shearer uh, for stretches of it and then when he went to Spurs I don't think he was ever quite the same quite the same force that he was so I, I think Beardsley's role in this in this team is is crucial really and actually you know, I'm sure we're going to come on to the arrival of Tino Esprit, um later on and oh, yes. uh, how, how, how that you know, there's there's this idea that Espria Espria's arrival derailed uh, Newcastle in in some respects, and, and how true that is is you know I'm sure, I'm sure well well we we'll get to a point, yeah. but um but yeah Beardsley certainly in the first
0: or two thirds of this season was crucial to the way that Keegan wanted to play. Speaking of the way that Keegan wants to play, I just want to go back to the identity thing that you were talking about because there's two things that I I love about the the team, and I think they really bring that home. One is that two, not only box-to-box midfielders, but really forward-looking midfielders, I think it's fair to say, in the centre of the park, Rob Robley and Lee Clark, um, both more likely to pick the right pass than necessarily kick somebody up in the air, although Lee Clark had a spiky side. Uh, and then the, the crucial thing, I think, is certainly by 95-96, the entire back four had started out their career as attackers. And I don't mean the way that all professional footballers are attackers when they're 12. I mean, that they were all strikers in various kind of youth systems until the age of well, a year or so before they're actually put into this side. So they're all, in a way, I suppose, the way we think of football playing centre-backs now. So although it's in some senses the, the Keegan is the anti-footballing coach from a modern perspective because there was a complete lack of system in, a, in the way that we might think of it in the 21st century at the same time that's quite forward thinking defenders who are first and foremost passers
2: i don't know if i'd say there was no system you know like what he was playing was like a very familiar you know very familiar british system that existed for for a long time and you can draw a straight line from keegan's newcastle to kendall's everton or or Dalgalish's Liverpool or you know or probably you know like the Villa side of the early 80s or the Forest side of Brian Clough you know like it was a a footballing 4-4-2 and that was something which was in the you know the DNA of English football and, and that was a system where the more progressive teams played it as a quick passing progressive type of system and the less fashionable teams played it as kick and rush and it was one of those things where essentially English football was divided into you know the haves that that played a a footballing four four two, and the have-nots that played a an efficient version of it um so I think it's one of the things about Keegan is that you know he's kind of remembered as being some kind of tactical dunce because of what happened with England but but I, I think that's a little bit unfair on him you know like um he just just like we talked about Dal Gleesh last week actually you know he was a obviously incredibly intelligent footballer like I remember growing up um having lots of videos of of sort of 70s highlights and what have you that you could buy down Woolworths had loads of videos of 70s Liverpool games on and um you know Keegan was an absolute genius of a footballer and, Mm. uh, and and you know like I don't think you can take a man like that and say that he just basically picked a team and put it on the pitch. Like that's, I think that's really unfair on him
0: actually. Um, so, but, but what does seem to happen is that when he does change the personnel in that four four two, 2 there seems to be very little sense of how changing the personnel actually is going to change the team. Um, then maybe we can come on to that a bit later on when, uh, when, when we do get to how results turn in the second half of the season, perhaps uh, because they do, it, Things, as we know, do do go wrong, and uh, it uh, it does come after moving some of those kind of parts around. I mean, I guess I, I, it, it's always a yeah. thing, isn't it? Like you can manage a tinker, don't they? You know. Mm. Uh, so to kind of move on, they do go backwards slightly in ninety four, ninety five. That's the season when they sell Andy Cole, and you've already mentioned the the famous image of Keegan justifying that sale. Uh, to the supporters who turn up um, looking for blood, basically. Uh, But he wins them over, and there's a wonderful moment in his book where he describes it, and um, by the end of the conversation, they're shouting out all the players that they wanted to sign in, and uh, some jolly shouts out, Baggio. And uh, this is quite funny to think of uh, Baggio (laughs) rocking up at (laughs) St. Joseph's in in 1995. Uh, But yeah, obviously, they do get um, Ferdinand, but that's only one of the parts that go on to make the 95 96 team. we've heard some of them already uh, Keith Gillespie comes in as a make weight in the Andy Cole deal I think that might be one of the great overlooked parts of just what a wonderful player to get as a as a make weight for one thing he was the I suppose the equivalent of what we say in last time out about the Stuart Ripley chalk on your boot swinger um But they also invested in 95-96 in David Ginola, as we've already heard, Warren Barton and Shaka Hislop. So all that money that went on the British transfer record to bring Andy Cole to Man United, all of that went on the playing squad. Uh, Warren Barton, really well-respected, attacking right back at Wimbledon. Uh, David Ginola, obviously out of favour with the French national team, but a really creative force who... You know, one people over immediately, and then hislop as a as a goalkeeper.
1: I think I mean the first thing to say about Les Ferdinand is that Man United wanted him in that that January that they bought Cole, and uh, I I listened to a really interesting interview with him uh, a, couple, a couple of weeks ago, um, knowing that this was coming up, and he said that he. Ferguson wanted him he wanted a, um another striker to, to, to play with Cantona and Ferdinand was the one that he wanted uh they apparently they they agreed a fee they sort of agreed terms but the, I think it was Jerry Francis was the QPR manager at the time and he said I, I really don't want you to go at this point I'll let you go at the end of the season but I'd, you know really we want you to stay and Ferd, Ferdinand being the, the 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 man that he is kind of Understood what QPR had done for him and wanted to to help them out, so he said, you know, we'll, we'll go wait to the end of the season. So United go and get Andy Cole instead. Fortunately, Kevin Keegan wanted Ferdinand, and, and Keegan's original plan was actually to play Ferdinand and Cole together. Um, he would have bought Ferdinand anyway, so Ferdinand uh, uh, explained it. But yeah, the obviously he ends up um, at at Newcastle and. He's, I think he's he's the perfect fit for that team. Warren, but my first memory of Warren Barton, I I, I saw a goals compilation of 92-93 season, and in August 1992, Warren Barton scores from his own half. I don't know if anyone's ever seen that goal. It's like it's like imagine Be- like Beckham's goal, but he slightly mishit it. <laughs> I do vaguely remember that
0: actually. Yeah. Yeah, it's familiar. I mainly remember I mean, that Wimbledon kit rampaging up and down the touchline. Like, <laughs> just... I mean, they Traffic. were really, ast- really astute
2: signings, weren't they? Like, I remember watching Shaggy I... play for Reading. Maybe it was a playoff final, actually. I think he played in that, yeah, the, the, the
1: 93 or 94. I think he played in the playoff final there. Yeah,
2: and he has an absolute worldy game. Um, and obviously the fact he was from Trinidad and stuff, you know, like... The idea of, um, you know, at the, at the time, like a Caribbean goalkeeper was unheard of, really. Um, and 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 that, you know, he had such a great game. I'm thinking somebody is going to come in for him, like he's going to go to a big club because he's, he was, you know, really. I mean, I think he was tall even for a keeper, if I remember rightly. Um, really athletic, uh, commanded his area, um, and was you know for the time decent with his feet as well so i remember thinking like someone's going to come in for this guy and it ends up being newcastle you know so they i think that you mentioned dna earlier i think all those signings fit the dna newcastle fans grew up on super mac you know the, the number nine you know jackie milburn you know like they grew up on number nines that can head the ball and run through leather it into the net Ferdinand absolutely fit what Newcastle fans want to see. Barton, is, as you say, Pete, was up and down the touchline all game. You know, so they were signings that fit. Gillespie absolutely was going to whip those crosses in for Ferdinand to get on to. And Ginola was one of the best players in the division, you know, for the I, whole I time. The in other English thing,
1: we talk, we talk about sort of DNA, like all of those players remain to this day cult cult icons among Newcastle fans like Shaka Hislop you can't think of his name without thinking of that kit or one of those two kits there's the blue there's the blue one with the um the shark fin in the middle the Newcastle brown ale in the middle and there's the orange one with the Newcastle skyline um and they're they're, they're both him sort of this ridiculously oversized shirt and he's got his sleeves rolled up and obviously he was he was vying for that um that that Number one uh, spot with Pavel Cerncek, who, who in his own right is a is a Newcastle icon. Barton is Barton's a Newcastle fan now. He he, he, <laughs> he follows them everywhere. Um, Ginley still talks about his, you know only had two seasons at Newcastle, but you know still I I think it's fair to say and he he's played for both of your teams. But I think when you think when you think of David Ginley, you think of him in that in that black and white shirt
2: he's incredibly fondly remembered Elaine as well. Like he won football of the year for us. Um, and he was yeah. really the, the only, the only bright spot in the otherwise very depressing George Graham era. But, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but yeah, no, like absolutely. Like he was at his peak at Newcastle and, and the things he did in those two seasons, you know, uh, were absolutely incredible. I mean, I watched you know, the season highlights from 95, 96, and there's actually a game at White Hart Lane where he absolutely, like, ruins Dean Austin's career in the space of about five (laughs) minutes, like, just sort of, you know, sort of turns him in and out about four times and then smashes it past Ian Walker, you know, and that's after we've gone 1-0 up with, like, a very fortuitous Chris Armstrong goal, um, there's a
1: there's a goal that he scored the seat the following season when we were, we were playing in the UEFA Cup um against Farage Varros and it's so, it's so niche but the the memory is burned into my brain because it's such an incredible goal um takes a corner on his right thigh bounces over his left thigh tees himself up and smashes it into the top right hand corner it's an unreal goal there is some really grainy footage of it on YouTube somewhere but like that that's my little little treat for you if, you, if you've if you never seen it before unreal that's, that's what he d-
2: could do oh he was I mean he could he could produce something out of nothing you know I mean and even his sort of you know just his his day-to-day play you know like he was he was able to to go both ways I think people that defended against him I remember I think Saul Campbell saying the thing about Ginella was or maybe it's Gary Neville actually as well like the thing was he was so big you know, like it, it wasn't just that that he was incredibly silky. He was six foot two, broad, incredibly strong. So he could basically do you with the fact that it, you know, he's got all the stepovers in his locker and everything. But he was also like impossible to knock off the ball if you were a fullback because he was bigger than any fullback was at that time. Um, and, you know, a physical match for a lot of centre-halves. So that that was what made him... As, as dangerous as, as, as anything else you know it's quite funny and he was
1: he was a big game player as well like uh, it, it, once again the, the uh, I, I think he he scored in that Liverpool 4-3 and he also um, he scored the I think it was it was the second goal um, against Manchester United the following season when we won 5-0 like when the game was still broadly in the balance and again exactly as you described he basically puts Gary Neville on his ass cutting in from the from the left and um curling into the far corner. It's it's unbelievable that he didn't play more for France really. And I know there I are mean, yeah. actually problems. Like him and him and Canson are both massive losses to the international game as far as I'm concerned.
2: But Yeah, it was it was an in, infamous instant where Shinela tried to play some sort of Hollywood crossfield pass against Bulgaria and it got intercepted, they went down the pitch <laughs> and scored. And France didn't I mean, qualify for you know, totally, say totally on brand. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. on brand. Um, it's quite funny though, like, 'cause uh, like, like recently, uh, like they put Shinola back into FIFA as a uh, as a hero card, and and he's one of the best cards in the game. Like when you kind of like uh, you, you start the game, his card is one of the best, and lo- like lots of kids that didn't grow up um, seeing him play, are, like, have said to me, like, is he was he really that good? And it's like no, no, he was good. Yeah. <laughs> like tr- tr- trust me, he was he was that good. Um, because of course he's uh, maybe I mean that's like, the thing if you if you didn't grow up in the uh, grew up in the nineties then, then you wouldn't have seen the guy play and and he's not sort of I guess as big a name as some that have come afterwards and so uh, it's one of those ones we have to
0: say right just go onto YouTube and look at the highlights yeah like he was good just don't put too much of an emphasis on tracking back. I think one of my favourite journalist stories was um, when he first turns up, because Newcastle were doing the outdoors open training sessions at Durham University at the time, and journalist has seen nothing like this, so when he turns up and sees someone running around the track, he assumes it's one of his teammates, uh, and invites him out for dinner later on in, in the evening, and this random student goes. And I think it's about nine o'clock at the night when they finally work out that they're not who the other one thinks they are. Uh, it's quite amusing. But, um, <laughs> That's again, like, never perfectly on before.
2: brand for Gimela, really. I should just... also say as well that he makes himself a cult hero by then appearing on BBC's coverage of, uh, of, of Euro Night 6 um, and France 98. Um, and he turns himself into this like incredibly charismatic pundit you know and um and and i think wins even more hearts because you know he sort of shows up in a suit and you know and talks about the games and it it really kind of like
0: endears into people by the time he turns up at tottenham he's more than just a footballer he's a celebrity now you know he's got fans that wouldn't normally watch football who liked david um
1: I genuinely think he was he was Beckham before Beckham was. Yeah, I can see that. Beckham, Beckham took it to the next level, but this was a guy who was, you know, he he appealed to all sorts, didn't he? Good, funny
2: good enough.
1: Look, Good-looking guy, excellent footballer. Bit of controversy about him. What's not to love?
2: Funny enough, like in that Newcastle season review uh, from ninety-five, ninety-six, um, they show an excerpt from a charity event where um Hislop, Barton um, and Ferdinand basically dress up like you know new kids on the block or take that and basically do this (laughs) sort of boy band routine um (laughs) And as there in this sort of um, leather jacket with no shirt underneath, you know, <laughs> sort of pulling these dance moves. <laughs> and it's and Ferdinand's like in some sort of like full like Armani Spice Boys suit.
0: It's it's it quite something. There's another wonderful story. It's just uh, just sat here. They're all coming back to me, but um, on the team coach on the way back from a, from a game and there's just this odd smell coming from the back of the the coach and uh, Keegan goes up to kind of have a look what's going on and it's Ginler and he's just smoking these incredibly strong French cigarettes (laughs) on on the back of the coach. We don't do that in England you're gonna have to you know get off and and finish it. Um, So he just gets off and kind of languidly sits at the side of the the, the lay-by just smoking his gawa or whatever it was and the the rest of the team are waiting because they're going to... It's the 90s, so they're going to get fish and chips on the way home. They're waiting for David Ginola to finish. And just as he finishes, he tosses the end of it away and just casually takes out another one and lights it up. <laughs> <laughs> just like, yeah, you can all wait for me. And that's just David Ginnell in a nutshell, isn't it? To change tax slightly, because I think we could do General all day and there'll be plenty of games to talk about when we come to think of the it's season. A bit for detail. <laughs> uh, anyway... Uh, one of the things Keegan said that he didn't have, uh, we've touched on this a bit with Heslop, with he always said he didn't have a great goalkeeper. You know, thoughts on that? I mean, obviously there were those two vying for it. I mean, Heslop's the goalkeeper until, into December, I think, and then he gets injured and Shonacek takes it until, I think, sometime the following I think, season, I think he gets the yeah, number one shot I, back.
1: I, I think it's fair to say, I, I think they're quite evenly matched. I think they're... they're they're of a similar standard. Um, You wouldn't put them at the level of, you know, a Schmeichel or David Seaman, or even a Tim Flowers at this point, so that, you know, they might be sort of, in terms of the rest of the league, they're probably middling, you could have probably swapped them for, you know, any of another 10 in the league at that time. And, you know, I'm not sure we'd have been any stronger. But I, I think, it, it, it's a strange thing in Newcastle. Like both of those players are revered, without actually being, you know, absolutely brilliant. I think it was. It, it, they obviously both bought into the the actual pro- projects, and their personalities within the team were were sort of considered important parts of the squad. But I think, I mean, I think it's a, it's fair from Keegan. I mean, although I mean, looking at that side, we remember the team. There's not that many superstars, really. I'd say that season, you know, Ginolo and Ferdinand are, you know, without doubt, the best two players in their position that 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 year. Beardsley is obviously sort of, you know, a world class and a, and a legend in his own right. But I'm looking at the rest of the squad. Rob Lee obviously becomes a, a, is an excellent player at this point. The defense is, you know, again, are there other players from any other team that I would probably swap and have? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think it is a team that becomes great in the sum of its parts, and I, in some ways, maybe I think Keegan blaming the goalkeeper is probably a little bit harsh on them because it's not the only area where you could say you know, maybe we could have been better. But yeah, yeah, they're not bad, but they're not great. I'd say.
2: I think. You know, you have to kind of look at it at the fact that that Schmeichel was just levels and levels above any other keeper in that in that league. And Keegan's probably looking at at that statement. I mean, essentially, like Schmeichel and Cantona win United this title. And if United don't have Schmeichel, they don't win this title. And I think probably that's what that's what leads Keegan to make that statement. If he had Schmeichel in goal, Newcastle probably win that title. You know, like uh, yeah, his lot was a great shot stopper. Sernchek was brilliant coming off his line, you know, he was like you know, a real pioneer of some of the sweeper keeper stuff that we we see much more often nowadays. Um but yeah, they are both prone to to being a little bit erratic. But um, you know, I think the thing is as well, is that we can't I mean you have to look at it in in, in context of, of where we're at the time. Um if you look at the, the Blackburn side last last week, you know, it's not full of inverted commas superstars if you look at it from a modern perspective, you know. But but yeah, I mean, Rob Lee was arguably the best midfielder in the country that season. And really, if it weren't for the fact that England's midfield was so much nailed on in Venables' mind, you know, if you're purely picking on form... Rob Lee would have played for England in the year '96, like no doubt about it. Like he was absolutely you know, at his peak this season, and I think he can probably count himself very unlucky that he didn't get more England recognition um, th- than he got. So, so yeah, like if you kind of stack it up, it, it doesn't look like in some ways Newcastle was full of superstars. But if you look at United's team '95, '96. It doesn't look that way either, because the class of '92 are very young in their careers, and you're basically relying on Kansnar and Schmeichel. You know, um, I seem to remember when we did that special about, like, you know, how they rated. GQ rated the uh, the top yeah. Premier League uh, title winners, and they had United '95, '96 pretty low, if I recall. Yeah, um, and and it's certainly true that that you know. That was a team of kids that infamously got embarrassed by uh was it filler actually on the first day it of the certainly season? He was.
0: <laughs> <Yeah. 3-1. laughs> and,
2: and um, you know, the, the infamous You win Nothing with Kids line. And it was a bunch of inexperienced, albeit would be brilliant players, um, being dragged over the line by, you know, the best That's number the ten actual. in the lands and, and the and the best keeper in the lands. Um so so yeah, like. I don't know if any team in the league that season had a full, like, you know, super team, plus a bench, plus people that can't get on the bench like you got now. Like, I, you can't really sort of apply 2010's logic to 90s football because it not. was just a, it was a different, a different kettle of fish.
0: That won't come into being for 10 years after this, yeah. the earliest I mean, this. I think this
1: this team is. I mean, we we talked about the the Blackburn Rovers approach, and obviously you know, the know the the local owner bankrolling his team to to Premier League success. And Sir John Hall tries a very similar thing with Newcastle. And actually, I put it to you that this is the last time that this happens. This is the last time that a team is basically um, sponsored by you know a local businessman. Um, A load of money is given to uh, a manager to basically just go and win the title and they come ever so close ever so close and they can't do it again this i mean this team is basically dismantled within a year oh yeah just over a year of um of, of finishing just behind united this year so it's quite a a a similar story to to Blackburn I think they kind of go they almost go bigger than Blackburn did Um,
0: and it just it all falls apart at the end well let's talk about some of the the season itself then Uh, before we get to when it goes wrong we should start with how it starts so right Uh, United sorry Man United I should say obviously have that embarrassing first day where having got rid of Paul Ince and uh, Mark Hughes and several other players, they have the, you win nothing with kids game. Newcastle start the complete reverse. They, they're at home. They beat Coventry three nil. And that starts a run where I think they lose twice in the first half of the season. The only games they lose are one nils, hardly a massive scandal there. Uh, one of them to uh, rude Hullett's Chelsea. It'll still be Glenn Hobbles Chelsea at this point. I don't know if the Hullett will be playing. Um, but there's lots of goal scores you know they they thrash Wimbledon, they put three past lots of teams, you know three goals is a pretty good return from wherever you sat, so yeah, that first half of the season absolutely flying,
2: yeah, they certainly were flying and 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 like the thing was is that they were they were blowing teams away in lots of ways, like the way they played it was very i mean it was very much like how United played between. 92 and 95 it was very it was very much from first it was very fast it was balls into the box it was midfielders getting in there amongst the goals you know and they had a crowd behind them that were absolutely you know eating it up um and they had all sorts of, of mem- momentum uh behind them and um yeah it was it was looking really really good for them and i'm not sure quite the point where they get to the 12 point lead i guess that's sometime in january I yeah think,
1: i think it's, it's, it's feb it's
0: early february i think no it's i've got it written down exactly in my gimme prep so the collapse starts um on the 20th of january they go 12 points clear of man united at the top but this is one of the Misnomery things that we, you know, we thought about there was a lot of myths that have got going because two days later, United play well, their game in hand and claw back three of those points. So they they got 12 points clear by not playing on the same day. Uh, so the following Monday, United got those three points back to bring it back to nine. Then both teams won their first two games in February, so the gap stayed about the same at around nine points. And that's around the time that they sign Faustino Aspria who makes his debut and turns the game against Middlesbrough when Newcastle are a goal down and they end up winning 2-1, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Then on the 21st, Newcastle lose away at West Ham while Man United beat Everton at home. So the gap's now six points. Three days later, Newcastle draw away at Man City. Uh Albert scored twice and Asprilla once, but each time they had to come from behind three times in order to get a point. And the following day, Man United thumped Bolton. So the gap's now four points. Next up then, Newcastle versus Manchester United at St. James Park. And if the Red Devils won it, they'd be one point behind. And I think this is the game that's gone down really as the the momentum swing game. Uh, Man United win 1-0. Uh, Schmeichel has a blinder. Eric Cantona gets the goal, as he so often did in those 1-0 wins. And the lead is all but gone at that point it's the West Ham game that's really damaging because there's no way
2: that West Ham team at that time should be beating Newcastle too now you know like obviously like yeah as you say the United game is the real heartbreaker because Schmeichel basically saves one-on-one from Ferdinand's time and time again and then it must have just been so draining to know that you had that many chances and the best goalkeeper in the world just just basically was otherworldly on that evening and then cantonized had that aura about him that season as well and 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 it sort of starts to look like it's not going to be your year but but you know that's the thing with with title chasing teams like when you drop points against west Ham, when you drop points against a really poor man city side uh that's never going to end too well
1: I think it's just the number of points we drop in a short period of time. Like we, as you say, we we basically go all the way through to the start of December only losing once, and then, you know, within go on a run where we we lose four out of six, and it becomes, you know, five. Uh, sorry, five out of eight. Um, yeah, the the West Ham game is things that I mean that that. Ha- that, it happens, doesn't it? it? Is how you pick yourself up from those from those sort of uh, setbacks that defines whether you're a, you're a champion or an or,
0: or an also ran. Should just point out quickly before I let you carry on, Joe. That in some ways the West Ham are a team on the up. This is Harry Redknapp's second season, and I think we're going to do Harry Redknapp's West Ham at some point. Uh, the Man City one is the one where you know, as you as you say how they pick yourself up a draw against a team who were going to go down. You know, Man City are going to get relegated this year. I've That's... got a funny, I've
1: got a funny feeling that this was, this game was slightly overshadowed by, um, Aspria sort of appearing to headbutt Keith Curl and, uh, and somewhat getting away with it. Um, and it, it was cited as a bit of a distraction at the time, but I mean, we we talked about, um, Asprey and, um, and Batty coming in because obviously these are the two players who come in sort of midway through the season. Uh, at the time, I mean, they seemed like pretty. I mean, Espria had been sort of causing all sorts of problems in Serie A for for Parma. Um, and again, he's still remembered on on time side as an as an as an absolute icon. He's Batty. Batty's the interesting one, isn't he? Because he 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 doesn't really fit into this system. Like he's obviously a a more defensive minded player. I can understand why he was brought in like he's 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 won two championship medals. Well, he won one and then gave up the other one because he was injured for most of the Blackburn one. But he's played in in two sort of championship winning sides. But you're right. He doesn't really sort of fit in this in this side. He's not sort of that progressive. He's, He's not always sort of forward thinking and so he's not quite he's not quite slot into this team in the way that you would you would hope
2: it's interesting isn't it like Keegan really liked David Batty he he played him for England you know he's a really a lot. good player but you know he played him for England a lot as well though like you know um I mean infamously it's it's Batty that misses the penalty isn't it in 98 mm. um yeah and I think the thing is is that uh, To me, like Lee Clark was was really important to that Newcastle team because because he was local, and I think there's a really powerful momentum driver when you have a local boy that's playing well for the side that's going for the title. And Lee Clark kind of giving up his place to David Batty. I don't know. They just they just kind of lost a little something. And Batty played really well for Dalgliesh when when came in. But yeah, it, it, you're right. It didn't quite work mid season. Like he's the kind of player that if you're going to fit him into your system, you probably needed a pre season. Like just chucking him into your standard 4-4-2 that you played all the way along, you know, was maybe was maybe not going to work. I mean, and obviously Aspria, like what a player. Like I remember watching him for Parma on Football Italia, you know, and he was unbelievably talented player. Yeah. Um, I think it's a little bit of a myth that him showing up like ruins Newcastle's rhythm or something like I, I don't I don't really think that's true I think
0: there's there's two players who suffer from him being in the side really it's nothing to do with us. playing badly it's but Les Ferdinand's goals dry up and Peter Beardsley is shut it out to the right and he doesn't seem as comfortable there I mean he's a great player and he can play on the wing but they had such a rhythm, and neither of them were the same player after they tried to get Aspria in. And I don't think Ferdinand liked playing with Aspria, to be perfectly honest with you. Yeah, so he was a what an, happened, individual, really. an individualist, wasn't he? I mean, that's the
2: thing is that he was a uh, like yeah, okay, Aspria basically would have been a great fit at Middlesbrough. You know, like that <laughs> that that Middlesbrough side they were building, he'd have been an absolutely great fit. But what's underestimated about the Newcastle team is they were not a team of individuals. They were a team. And when they were playing well with the inverted commas classic 11. You know, they had a real they were a real force of nature. What Newcastle didn't have particularly was a squad. And I kind of understand what Keegan was doing, because what he was doing was thinking, okay, we don't have much depth like, if you look at Newcastle's bench, it's basically players that have lost their first team place, right? It's people like Gavin Peacock, who were really important to an earlier incarnation of the side, and now are kind of, you know, uh, out of fashion.
0: He, surely he'd he's gone in, to Chelsea. Has, he, he, has, he, has he gone by then? You're
2: not saying that Darren Peacock? That, no, 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 I, I, I think Gavin was still hanging around at that time, I might be wrong, but, but you I know, mean, like there were lots also, of players on the bench that were never going to get a game. I don't know, I mean, there's the squad players like this like, like Robbie Elliott,
1: Steve Watson plays quite a lot this season. Um, it is a small th- squad, though. Th- th- yeah, and, and actually, you, th- there's a couple of players they bring in. Uh, so Barton Gillespie and Ginola obviously all come in. Out goes Scott Sellers. Rule Fox goes to Spurs, I think. He right? does, yeah, yeah he yeah. does. And, I mean, it's interesting um, Mark Hossiger, um, was our was our right back, and he I think he goes to Everton, I think. Um, yeah. So. Like, so we don't keep those players around. Like, obviously, it's a different time. Like, you, you you can't afford to keep players on on foot on basically first team wages to sit on the bench. It's just there's just not the. And, and then, yeah, I suppose the alternative to, you know, if, if if Ferdinand's not fit, then you've got the relatively unproven Huckabee or Paul Kitson. So Esprit is undoubtedly an upgrade on on both of those two. The problem with Esprit, I mean Esprit's best days for Newcastle came when Ferdinand had gone and Shearer was injured. He, he, he best as a sort of the focal point and, mm. you know, licensed to do whatever the fuck he wanted. And when he did that, he was lethal. Mm. Um, but playing okay. in this kind of team where, you know, the the sort of the togetherness and the sort of being the grace, grace in the sum of its parts was its main sort of strength. It, it, it didn't quite fit and he had his moments like yeah. huge, he had obvious quality and he, and he he scores five goals in the second half of the season so it's it's one of those things that and, you know and and had it worked out it would have been it would have been, would seen have been a masterstroke it was a masterstroke and again we weren't that far away
2: <laughs> in um you know in modern football of course you have a you know a transfer window that shuts much earlier and you wouldn't be able to do that that Asprey deal you know because it, it oh. comes in what like is it March I think February it's February, February right I'm yeah so March. yeah so so basically like in Muslim football it, it would never have happened you know um it's funny to think of that it, it, it is yeah um it also I just remembered about the goalkeeper question you know um if if only Shea Given had been two years older I mean, there's
0: your goalkeeper problem Is
2: sort of, right? Because because he's kind of starting to be on the bench around this
0: time, isn't he? And, uh, um, at Blackburn at yeah, this point still. He comes with, with Dalgleish, which we'll touch on at the end, I suspect, is uh, tying us back to, to Blackburn. Uh, right. Just before we go back to uh, the games, the one last point on Esprit, which comes from the Mixer, which we've mentioned several times in this podcast, but when Ferdinand was complaining about having to form a partnership with Aspria, Keegan's said to have I don't know how true this is but said to have uh told him what you have to do Les is expect the unexpected great what am I what am I supposed to do with that uh that was and that does describe how to play with Aspria, but it, it doesn't didn't help him whatsoever and I think he was secretly quite glad when he he moved on in the end but as I say we at this point the lead is all but gone but it's not gone Newcastle are still ahead at the point we left it after they played man united but the momentum has very much swung uh newcastle did bounce back to win two days after cantona had rescued a point in the last minute against qpr so they've actually increased the lead again haven't seen it shrink but in the space of three days bruce Riox's arsenal played a huge part in the direction of the title as they went to old trafford and lost 1-0 With Cantona again, the lone goalscorer. And then they went back to Highbury where they beat Newcastle 2-0. Finally, Man United were on top on goal difference. And Newcastle's next game was against Liverpool. We all know what happened
1: there. I mean, I was 10 when this game was played. I'm 36 now. And I swear I can... (laughs) Every now and again, I can hear Martin Tyler screaming... Collymore closing in, and it just sort of echoes around. And I can remember it. I can remember Keegan collapsing on the advertising hoarding, Collymore running away. I'd watched that game, and I was convinced we were going to do it. And it's it was the most probably the most crushing moment I can think of as as a football fan.
2: And with uh, Keegan having such Liverpool associations as well um yeah you know it, it must have been incredibly difficult for him you know to sort of uh it was at Anfield wasn't it it was at Anfield yeah for him to go to Anfield and you know and and suffer that I mean that must have been incredibly difficult for him but I guess for Liverpool you know they saw themselves at this point as being in that title race or on that you know, at least with an outside shot of it, um which is why they played so hard. I we led twice. I mean, Fowler opens
1: a scoring early on and you think, Oh God, it's all gonna go wrong, but our, within fifteen minutes we're we're in the lead. For memory, a goal is kind of like a, a breakaway and he kind he basically lifts it over the keeper. It's it's the coolest finish um with an hour gone and to put us to put us three uh, one, sorry three two up. Fowler had just scored, and within a couple of minutes we're back ahead. Asprey has just just done what he likes, and um, and at that point you think that's it. We've we, we've got this in the bag now. There's <laughs> they they can't come back again, surely. And then you, I just I just remember sort of the last sort of five minutes of of normal time, and then injury time. There was just more and more pressure on us. And that's when you you sort of get a bit you get a bit anxious and a bit a bit worried and then like, we all know how it ends now. Pete, you put the link in. Um, so the, the, the full the full game is on on YouTube somewhere.
0: um I couldn't bring myself to watch it because I, <laughs> go-
1: I know how it goes.
0: <laughs> there's this, there's an inevitability about it, isn't there? Watching it back now. um I think the thing to kind of remember is that. Premier League broadcasting was still fairly young. We hadn't had classics like this on Sky, and it was just some random Wednesday night. It wasn't like in the usual kind of slot. It was just just to happen to fall that way, I guess. And then all of a sudden you just sat there, and I'm not much older than you, and sat watching the most breathless game I think I've ever seen. Um, Just an absolute spectacle. Um, John Barnes rolling back the years on the one hand and Peter Beardsley doing it on the other. Um, I I suppose the main goal that I remember really is Ginnellers to put Newcastle ahead and then just that last few minutes and just as I said they were the neutral's favourite team so I was back in Newcastle. I mean I wouldn't have been as devastated as you obviously but I I felt like Kevin Keegan when, when that goal went in. I was almost slumped over my own little imaginary advertising hotball is in my front room I mean I, I genuinely think that was
1: the moment that it broke Kevin Keegan as a manager you know he, he's not even in the job a year later um, he's he's never quite the same after that and obviously he has, he has his meltdown on, on local radio shortly afterwards and
2: uh, <laughs> he's just a really emotional guy I think and, and what made quite, him such
1: a great player, and, and and what what made him such a sort of cult figure as a manager, that he, he wore his heart on his sleeve. He, he, you know, he genuinely he wanted to win this so badly for Newcastle, not because it was his job, but because he really
2: wanted to win it for the club. Um, and what, and think, you know, when he walks away from those jobs, you know, he walks away from Newcastle, he walks away from England. He didn't really need to uh, in either situation. He was in no danger of being sacked. Um I
1: think when he when he walks away from Newcastle, we just thumped your lot. Yeah. Yeah,
2: no, we, was, ju- we it, just
1: beaten Spurs 7 1.
2: Yeah, it was it was it was basically so out of the blue. But essentially he had such self doubts, you know, because he never intended to be a manager. When Newcastle took it, you know, like Arsenal's take the job, it was basically an SOS, you know, as Pete said, like in danger of going down, financial trouble, and he couldn't say no. Because obviously he'd enjoyed his swan song as a player at, at Newcastle so much. You know, he'd got them up from the second division, had this incredible autumn of his career, if you like. And he had such an affinity with the fans that he, he, he couldn't say no. And But he always had these really deep-seated self-doubts that he wasn't really a manager. And he kind of suffers from from this this lack of... Of, of self-confidence that you know when things do like go wrong rather than someone like Ferguson that basically is just like you know shrugs it off Keegan goes into real bouts of complete existential dread about the whole thing And as you say it, it you could say it starts here I mean but he if I remember rightly like when they were in the first division he threatened to walk out at one point yeah because they they wouldn't give him the money for a transfer or something like that and he and he and he threatened
0: to go he there's some moment where he basically feels like he's not being given what he was promised basically and that they've kind of undermined him kind of publicly and he threatens to walk out over it he's uh there's a there's a whole kind of thing of i'm only here if everyone's going to keep their word and that comes around again obviously in the second spell which uh, we won't go into because we did it in the uh <laughs> the episode way back where I will say that when he does leave eventually, I think it's something to do with the upcoming PLC moves. You know, Newcastle are about to become a publicly listed kind of company. And there's someone, I can't remember his name. I want to, I, if I, I'll get it wrong, I'll say Mark Corrigan, but that's him off Peep show. Um, <laughs> but it, it, there's some executive who comes in and he is responsible for, pushing the whole thing and he almost tries to you know force Keegan to sign this longer term deal to secure it to make the the float go easier and Keegan says well if you're going to force my hand you know what I'm going to do and the rest of them the John Halls and, and so on and Freddie Shepherds don't have the bottle if you like to to stand up for Keegan so he walks and uh, and that's it basically that's that's it there are a couple of uh, things to add quickly just to to finish up on um is the rant another really great misconception?s Isn't it all over then? It's not why they lost. It's already done. I think. I think the rant.
1: Yeah, the, the rant is is a symptom, not a cause. Um, it, it's just simply evidence that Keegan is, as 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 Neil says, he feels he's in over his head, and this is his kind of last Hail Mary. But actually, it's it, it's already gone by this point. It's. It. But the thing is, it's it is the the event that I suppose demonstrates and best illustrates the collapse from the sort of the confidence of the first half of the season to him sort of yelling into a, into a microphone <laughs> with those comical, comical <laughs> that's headphones insane. that's, that's, what makes that's it, the thing that's
2: what makes that, it so that's so what makes it so great is it his big coat his big it's, promotion jacket he's got
1: it's absolutely, you know, it, it, it is one of those definitive 90s moments, isn't it? Like it's.
2: Um... But Ferguson just had a habit of doing that to people. He grounds people down and years later you get one with Benitez, you know, the, the infamous, you he gets like, that. his li- list of facts, <laughs> you know, like and Ferguson, he just he just had a habit of doing that to people. And the only person he couldn't do it to was Wenger, you know, like. Basically, Wenger just wound Ferguson up. It was almost like the other way around, wasn't it? Um, I, but but you know, the thing was is that Keegan wasn't wrong. Like they did have to go to Middlesbrough and get something, so he wasn't wrong. Yeah. Like um, United, it would, ha- it would have helped if we'd beaten Spurs, but you know. But but you know, United could have still messed it up. Like mm. it, it those twists and turns have happened before, and I think. You know, as far as Keegan was concerned, he was defending the integrity of Stuart Pearce. Like as I as I recall, like Ferguson had basically said that Forrest wouldn't be trying very hard or something like that, <laughs> and then like Keegan had basically just like absolutely lost it at, at that idea. But I mean, ultimately, it was Leeds, wasn't it?
1: No, it was, it was Forrest. We drew with uh, we we drew with Forest or sort of three days
0: before the end of the season. Um, I, I, it was um, having come out of the Leeds Man United game. Yeah. He accused um, Leeds of playing out of this skin against Man United, basically just hoping to get Leeds to get a reaction. Yeah, but then he and, also mentioned uh, Forrest as well. And like Frank Clark that, being the chair of the London Newcastle fan club or something. Yeah, <laughs> so, like it was, it was again,
2: classic we, Ferguson stuff, but Keegan just... He, he, at that point, he's, he his effort was gone, wasn't it? Yeah.
1: But we mentioned, we mentioned the Espria thing was, you know, it, if, if, it, if we'd won the league, signing Espria would have been an absolute masterstroke. And again, if United had lost to Middlesbrough and we'd beaten Spurs, that interview would have gone down as one of the greatest mind games won in the history of, of Premier League football. Um, so, yeah, I, I, it, it, as you say, he wasn't wrong. He had to try and do something. To fire up his team and to try and you know maybe try and upset the uh, the, the juggernaut at Manchester United, but I mean United weren't going to lose that, were they? No, no, absolutely not. They they'd been there before. They had all the experience of uh, and you know they'd done the hard bit. They'd come from 12 points behind allegedly. So you know, having done that, that they've done the job enough times and having missed out the season before there was no way Ferguson was letting them get away with it two years
0: in a row. But hmm. They were the last team you wanted in the rear view mirror at that point, weren't they? Uh, as you say, Newcastle don't win either of the last couple of games uh, of that season. I think they end up four points adrift as a result of that. United do win the remaining games. And that was the difference. Uh, and we've already touched on, you know, Keegan is gone the January after this. Uh, it's, at the end of an iconic five years, there's just enough time left, I suppose, to touch on the last two big moments, really, of the Keegan era. One is that his solution to this is to go out and buy Alan Shearer for 15 million quid, a new world transfer record. Uh, that's meant to be the the thing to give the club a lift after Shearer's performances at Euro 96 and after they just missed out on the on the title. And the other thing, I guess, is that 5-0. You know, there's maybe the what might have been where they smash Man United uh, with five different scorers. Those are the kind of last two significant memories, I guess, of Keegan's first spell at Newcastle and that whole five-year run where he took them from an inconsequential second division team that might have gone out of business to one of the real driving forces of the early Premier League. That
2: 5-0, I thought they would go and win in the league after that it was so comprehensive
1: i mean they absolutely they marmalized them
2: and i i watched that game relatively recently actually you know like I they watch do those
1: i watched it in lockdown
2: yeah they did those like classic games don't they on yeah sort of sky sports one in the morning right and sometimes like you know I'm getting ready for work and like i just stick you know stick it on and there'll be a game on in the background while i get ready for work and uh and frequently it is a night it's classic and uh I remember being of, like, you know, missing the train because I was watching this game, and like, because it was that good. Uh, but they really were so impressive that day, and I can't think of many times when United got humiliated that badly in that, in that time period, you know, like, maybe maybe Southampton with the, you know, we yes. couldn't see the shirts or, you know, the, Villa. The, the, the Villa 3-1. Yeah. The Villa. But otherwise, I mean, you know, I can't I, think of any time I, they got the humiliated more.
1: There's some really iconic moments in this game. Uh, by this point, they've worked out how to kind of accommodate Batty because I think at this point they realised you know, they they need a they need a defensive midfielder for certain games and that there's I think this is the game where Nicky um, Butt meets David Batty and uh, wishes he hadn't. Um And then the the Philippe Albert chip. I think that's one of the most iconic moments of 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 nineties football, bar none. Like it's, it is glorious, and he, I, I never get tired of watching it. You know what's coming, and it's still brilliant.
2: Yeah, Albert was just a, a fantastic player, wasn't he? Like I think he was
1: ahead, he was ahead of his time. I think. I think he was. He, I I think he he'd have, he'd have, he'd have, he'd have fitted right into. Premier Imagine him playing right
2: for Pep for pep city imagine him playing for them um but but you know it was almost like ahead of his time but also behind his time you know because he was a classic sweeper like mm. if he'd been playing in the 70s it would have been a you know he'd have been back and about, you know like as a yeah. flat back four <laughs> like set yeah. defender like maybe not ideal in some situations but Ed, eddie howard t- have made
1: eddie howard have made him a
2: <laughs> <laughs> what he a, a talented himself. such a talented player yeah
1: and uh, you know the, the the goals that are scored. I mean, they, they, there's Ginola scores. Uh, I've already mentioned that Ferdinand Shearer. Albert, I forget who scored the first one. Peacock. Was it oh, Darren from the header? Yeah. Mm. Um. So yeah, all all different types of goals, but but United didn't have an answer for it. Weirdly though, it's um it, it's easy to forget that we we played them a few weeks earlier in the Charity Shield. and got absolutely smashed four nil. Mm. Um and there was a feeling in the dressing room that, you know, we we thought I'd go back and, and and show what we're made of because that wasn't it. But yeah, there, there was I, I think as that season wore on, it was ob- it something was amiss.
0: Well it it's not even as the the season wears on really, they win one of the next nine. So they go from this wonderful performance. To they beat Middlesbrough, but they lose to Martin O'Neill's Leicester. They draw with West Ham and Chelsea. They lose to Arsenal, who are obviously becoming a good Arsenal team by this point. Uh, lose to Nottingham Forest. Lose, sorry, draw with Nottingham Forest and lose to Coventry. I mean, things are quite immediately go wrong, and there is just enough time, literally, for a mini revival and uh, ten goals in two games with the Spurs and Leeds home games. That's all there's time for before the whole thing ends. And that brings the the curtain down on the Keegan era.
1: I mean, given what happened in the the following summer, it sounded like the money wasn't going to be there, and it was obvious that we weren't going to win the league that season in 1997. And the writing was on the wall, I guess. I mean, you, I remember like obviously Kenny Dalbleach comes in, and I, I think I'd probably unfairly derided Dalbysh for what happened to that squad. Like it was basically, with with no real understanding as an 11 year old about how economics and football works. Um, That team was decimated. Like our two, you know, two of our best players were sold to Spurs. There's, there's the irony of um, Les Ferdinand agreeing to move to Spurs the same weekend that Alan Shearer breaks his ankle. Um, but by, by the time they find out that he's going to be out for half a season, the deal's already done. And yeah, it it was it was just it was a bit of a, a sad ending, really, like the fact that we straight away, we, we couldn't compete anymore. We just couldn't compete.
2: It's interesting, isn't it? Because you, you kind of have that that slight gap then. And you have to hull it disaster and stuff. And then Bobby Robson comes in and builds like a new team and and you kind of go again. Which is cool, really, because Newcastle don't end up sort of, you know, becoming an irrelevance until, you know, like the, well, sort of really. mid 2000s, well, later mid 2000s, isn't it really like 2006 ish, you know, onwards. So, yeah, like they, you know, actually sort of stay uh, a kind of relevant top five team for, a, you know, really overall, I mean, if you just kind of rule out the a bit, like you know for a good 10 years um which is pretty impressive and of course now it looks like they're going to be back there so you know maybe one day that one day pretty soon actually like the uh, the title who do will uh will finally be broken
1: oh well, i'm sure we'll find some way of
0: uh of it up <laughs> <laughs> i'm not well, speaking possible of it uh, used to be but <laughs> speaking of ballsing it up uh We will be looking at something a little bit more in that vein next week. Uh, From the sublime to the ridiculous, we're going from the entertainers to mathematically the worst team to ever play in the Premier League. What happens when you come up woefully unprepared for the top flight? You get the 2007 and 8 Derby County. It's going to be an interesting one, a bit of a change of pace for us. Hope you'll uh, come back and join us when we have a look at that. Until next time, take care. See you soon.